This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor makes it super easy to create a podcast. Record or edit right from your phone or computer, add music and effects, and then publish. With one click, Anchor will distribute your podcast to Spotify, Apple, and all the other platforms. And here's the best thing. Anchor will help you make money from your podcast by finding you sponsors. We use Anchor here on Talk Money, and it's everything we need in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Now on to the show. And Carlos, was there a risk to carrying anything, like whether it was money or valuables crossing the border? Would it be possible to get confiscated? Is there a fear in that? Uh, the people at the border, they can take your phone, your laptop. Sometimes when they see something valuable you have, like a laptop, they will ask you for an invoice or some paper that says that is mm. yours, which is absurd. But since you don't have it, they can confiscate it. So... There's always a risk you get your thing stolen. You're listening to Talk Money, and I'm your host, Mesh Lakani, and I'm speaking with Carlos Hernandez. He's an economist living in Venezuela, and he's telling me about the risk of trying to cross the border. Border guards might shake you down for your cash or your belongings, but there's one thing they can't take so easily. But yeah, I don't think they are particularly technologically savvy to uh, confiscate your bitcoins. They might not be aware that you have them. Now, I first became interested in Bitcoin from an investment standpoint. But Carlos's story gets to the heart of what cryptocurrencies, or crypto, were originally designed for. In today's episode, we're learning about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Now, if you've been paying attention to the news, the reasons for trying to leave Venezuela might be obvious. The nation is going through an economic collapse. Daily inflation of its currency, the Bolivar, is at least in the single digits. Notice I said daily inflation. Annual inflation for 2018 was over a million percent. We actually have the highest inflation in the world by far. So it's pretty bad there right now. Carlos's story went viral after he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about how he and his family survive in such a bad economy. And uh, one of the ways I survive is with cryptocurrencies. With such bad inflation, it'd be crazy to keep his wealth entirely in bolivars. So in that case, you're using your bolivars to purchase Bitcoin and then holding Bitcoin instead of the bolivar? Uh, a lot of people are doing that, but uh, because of my work, I don't actually earn in local currency. I write and uh, I get paid in Bitcoin or in cryptocurrency simply because of, uh, thanks to our currency controls, I cannot have bank accounts in dollars. It's simply not legal. I can only hold local currency. So uh, cryptocurrencies are a way for me to uh, bypass all of these uh, restrictions and actually get paid for my work. And can you give us, can you share what does your daily routine look like when you're, you know, shopping for food or paying expenses or paying rent? How does that work for you? So not a lot of people accept Bitcoin directly. So the first step is to uh, turn it into local currency. So the first step before I buy would be to actually go to a, a web page and exchange. And from there, I can just sell my bitcoins and get local currency. Most people use normal exchanges where you actually buy or sell bitcoins to a company, say Coinbase. And once I get the bolivars in my bank account, I can go and spend it in the stores near me with my debit card. 
So uh, that is why uh, the Bitcoin is so valuable to us because we can uh, receive money uh, from anywhere in the world and uh, be able to use it right away. And that is actually the easy part. The the hard part will be to, to find the products that I need. And, and, and you're saying just because uh, such a low supply in terms of um, food and, and what other items you need at the grocery store? Yeah, so uh, there was scarcity of products. But at this point, we actually have a scarcity of stores. When you convert, obviously, the inflation so much that the Bolivars could be worth less within you know, hours, within days. Um, so you only do this when you need to purchase something, correct? Exactly. <laughs> Prices can vary significantly. Uh, sometimes in the same day, you go in the morning, there's a price. You go in the afternoon, and there's a different price. So it's good to uh, not have any believers whatsoever, unless you want to spend it. What's going on in Venezuela is terrible, but I'm amazed that something as intangible as crypto can make a difference. Because Carlos gets paid in Bitcoin, it seems like he can rest easier than most Venezuelans. But um, if I compare myself with friends that earn in Bolivars, there is a pretty big difference in the calmness because the hyperinflation really doesn't affect me uh, that much. I'm pretty shielded from that. But if I was earning Bolivars, wow. Bitcoin. Many are skeptical, many are believers. Some think it's a scam and a method to buy black market goods, while others see this as the future to privacy, to freedom, and even a new type of investment. But here in Venezuela, we have a gold-plated example of how the promise of Bitcoin is shaping the world. Now let's make this more transparent. Here on Talk Money, it's my job to help you cut through the noise and the hype. Let's learn about this, the same way I did before taking crypto seriously as an investment. When I bought Bitcoin in 2013, I didn't understand why anyone thought it was valuable. I just saw other people buying it. I didn't know how it worked, I didn't really understand what it was, and since then I've learned from the experts. We'll be spending two episodes on cryptocurrencies. In this episode, you'll learn about the foundations of crypto, why they were created, what problems are solving, and what mining is. Then in the next episode, we'll learn about buying crypto, the proper way to store it, and how to think about it as an investment. But first, how do we get here? And that is actually a great question. The primordial soup that caused Bitcoin to happen was in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. That's Avichal Garg, an entrepreneur and founder of Electric Capital, a fund focused on investing in the crypto space. Before putting all his attention into crypto, Avichal sold his company to Facebook, where he became the director of product. If you kind of rewind about 10 years when the Bitcoin white paper was released, what really motivated it was the institutions that made society work for the last 40, 50, 60, 70 years started to show strain. And of course, one of those is the banks, which, uh, you know, we, we saw in 2008. We are watching this market deteriorate. We read everywhere, essentially. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Almost half of new mortgages last year were these high-risk mortgages? Subprime loans. Your company is now bankrupt. Our economy is in a state of crisis. But you get to keep $480 million. Society trusted banks with their money. They were supposed to know what they were doing. But as Wall Street successfully lobbied for looser oversight, they became reckless. They created a housing bubble. And when it popped, it led to a massive collapse of the U.S. financial system. If you look at data more broadly, if you look at Pew data or Gallup data, what you see is that there are all of these institutions in society, whether it's the banks or the press and media, schools, 
uh, you know, government in general, all of these institutions that really post-World War II society relied on, uh, a lot of people just don't trust anymore. And actually in, in Western democracies in particular, you're seeing that the, the percentage of people who trust or significantly trust these institutions is, is a small minority. It's down to 30%. Whereas in the 50s and the 60s, it was more like 70 or 80% of people trusted these institutions. So there's kind of this macro backdrop that I think you have to keep in mind, which is we as as members of these societies uh, are worried that we we can't trust these institutions anymore. Bringing that forward from the 60s and the 70s to, to 2008, um, the Bitcoin white paper gets released. The 2008 white paper was written by a person or a group of persons going by the name Satoshi Nakamoto. The paper entitled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system, outlined a system based on cryptography. It promised the ability for two parties to send each other payments electronically without the need for a third-party institution, like a bank. And inside it, what Satoshi talks about is well, suppose I want to do these things that, that a bank helps me do. Uh, namely, it helps me uh, intermediate money transfers um, and it holds my money. Suppose I want to do those things, but I don't want to trust a bank. How might I actually go about doing those things? And that's kind of the backdrop of it. And that's where it started. That sort of worldview of, well, what if I don't trust the intermediaries that I used to have to trust to get these things done? How would I go about building a new system? But 2008 was really only the culmination of this worldview of distrusting institutions. People had tried reimagining those systems before by creating cryptocurrency. Bitcoin and the blockchain, however, proposed a solution to a key problem. The double spend problem, which is in a distributed system uh, where everybody is sort of maintaining their own version of a ledger. Um, like fundamentally, blockchains are, are also referred to as distributed ledger technology. A ledger is basically a record of transactions just like a bookkeeper or an accountant uses. A bank, which operates as a centralized system, would easily be able to keep its ledger up to date. But in a distributed system, each participant has to keep their copy of the ledger updated themselves. That's where the double spend problem comes into play. The challenge is how do you prevent somebody in that distributed system spending money and then spending that money again? Let's say 100 different people all around the world have a copy of this ledger there's sort of this coordination problem of how do you make sure that somebody who's malicious can't go spend that money twice and tell different parts of the distributed ledger network that they've sent the money to Alice or Bob. And by the time everybody sort of realizes that this person uh, has actually spent the same money twice, they've run off and done a bunch of transactions and caused a bunch of damage. And it's a really easy thing to solve if there's just one person who's reconciling the ledger. It's a much, much harder problem to solve if there are 100 people who have their own copy of the ledger. So it's actually a legitimate technological breakthrough that the Bitcoin white paper came up with. And so now talking about Bitcoin itself, I was talking to my very good friend's mother. She's looking at me blankly like, how do you explain Bitcoin to me? How does one explain it? Yeah, the the way I usually fall back to just a really simple explanation is it's digital gold. You know, I think a lot of people have an intuitive understanding for what gold is. It's this limited quantity, precious metal that you can physically hold that is not your government's currency, but everybody in the world sort of recognizes that it has value. Like you can fly to India or China or South America and, and you can transfer your gold for, for local currency. Uh, but no one country controls it. And it has a lot of really interesting properties. There's a global market for it, so it's pretty liquid. Uh, it's very dense. It's very portable, right? Per ounce, it's worth a lot. But, you know, you can put it in your pocket and you can carry $10,000 or $100,000 of gold with you. And so it actually you can move it across country boundaries very easily. It is hard to take away. Like nobody really knows you have it. So it's seizure resistant. 
those underlying properties are why we, we like gold. It has a bunch of really great properties that, that very few other things have, actually. Well, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is just this thing that actually has all of those same properties, right? A government doesn't control it, so there's no centralized point of failure. There's a global liquid market for it. You know, it's very easy to assess the value of it. It's very easy to transport it. It, it, it has all of those same properties. And so at a high level, you can think of it as a digital gold, basically. And if enough people believe that those underlying utilitarian features uh, have real value and are willing to say that it has value, over time it becomes reflexive and, and uh, therefore will have some value. We're going to use this term store of value a lot. We want to put our wealth into something that is stable, where it has future use, and there's a high amount of demand. The U.S. dollar and gold have historically been popular stores of value. Someone consider New York real estate or fine art to be a store of value. And similar to gold, there's a limited quantity of Bitcoin. The code underlying the cryptocurrency specifies that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. This is what economists call fixed supply. With fixed supply, increase in demand always means an increase in price because there will never be additional supply to relieve the pressure. One point which underscores why so many people really do like Bitcoin is gold is not actually fixed supply. Right? We, we keep mining more gold out of the earth and it becomes harder and harder to, to acquire that gold. But you know, if an asteroid were to, to come into Earth's orbit tomorrow and it has a ton of gold in it and we started extracting all of that gold, all of a sudden the supply and demand dynamics of that would change and, and you would potentially tank the gold market. And this has happened in, in the case of other metals in the past, like uh, aluminum or silver, where uh, the market dynamics can get really disrupted. And what's great about Bitcoin is it's mathematically the case that there are only 21 million Bitcoin. And so it's, it's in that sense, is very, very predictable. Without underlying protocol changes, you're not going to change the supply. So there's exactly 21 million Bitcoin that are ever going to be mined. About 17.7 million of the Bitcoin have already been mined. And the way it works is there is a fixed interval. Uh, every 10 minutes, a new block is produced. And the block, when it's produced, sort of creates the Bitcoin. So the protocol is essentially creating and emitting Bitcoin um, at a fixed rate uh, until you get to 21 million. The protocol? Sounds a bit abstract, doesn't it? What you need to know here is that there's a network of computers or nodes. These nodes work to verify and record Bitcoin transactions, usually in sets called blocks. The code underlying Bitcoin requires them to verify these transactions by racing to crunch a complex mathematical problem. Once the first computer finishes the problem, the rest of the computers verify its work. The block of transactions is recorded by all ledgers only after a certain critical percentage of the network has verified the work. If it all checks out, then the system rewards the original problem-solving computer with Bitcoin and the transaction is recorded in the blockchain forever. As the chain of confirmed blocks gets longer, the mathematical problems get increasingly complex. It takes a large amount of processing power to crunch them. This activity is known as mining. The way to think about mining is you have a CPU, you have some uh, computer, and sort of a simplifying assumption for a second, Imagine that you have only 10 CPUs in this network. So if there are 10 CPUs that are all about the same computational power and you have one of those 10, you have 10% of the network. And so with each block, you have about a 10% chance of winning 
the Bitcoin that are emitted out of the protocol. You can think of it almost like a lottery, where the likelihood of you winning the lottery is the percentage of the computational power of the network that you own. Now, of course, in, in practice, there are all sorts of different types of CPUs. There's customized hardware. Uh, there are many, many, many millions and, and billions of CPUs out there. And these are people actually setting up machines. I've I've read things where people have a garage full of equipment. You need more power. As we mine more Bitcoin, it becomes harder and harder, correct? Yeah, that's right. So there are a couple of uh, factors there. So there is uh, the amount of Bitcoin that's available. Uh, there is how hard it is to actually mine. There's essentially a, a probability of you winning it, which is based on... Um, the total amount of computational power in the network. Um, and the Bitcoin protocol actually dials up or dials down what's called the difficulty function um, based on how long it's taking to produce blocks. Um, and then there's what percentage of the network do you actually own? So the, the protocol is trying to balance when there's a lot of uh, miners on, this, on the network versus not that many miners. So there's you know how many coins are there left? What is the difficulty function? What percentage of that network do you own? And you can take those three things and you can essentially have a probability of winning a Bitcoin. Now, in, in practice, what's happened is the era of running a Bitcoin node or a Bitcoin miner at home and winning a block uh, is is gone. Like several years ago, you could do that. Right. But, but these days, you're really talking about very, very sophisticated operations running in data centers. You're talking about specialized hardware. So it's not even uh, like an off-the-shelf computer anymore. These are very, very, very custom designed chips. They're called ASICs, um, solely designed for the purpose of mining Bitcoin. And not only have they tried to optimize on the dimension of computational power, but it's really computational power per watt. Because what, when, one of your biggest costs in running these is the actual electricity that you have to use to, to run the Bitcoin computational puzzle. And really what you're talking about these days is on, on the Bitcoin network, just data centers and data centers full of ASICs. And you have to really run it sort of as a data center operation to be competitive these days. And so what what's the incentive for folks to do this? Um, obviously, it, the machines must cost a lot of money. You know, the power is expensive. What is the incentive to mine Bitcoin versus just like, okay, I'm just going to go buy this? Uh, it's ultimately economic. So people are making a, in theory, a rational economic decision to go the route of mining rather than buying on the, on the public markets. And the reason you might do that, for example, is that you have some sort of proprietary access to electricity. So let's say you're in a part of the world that has excess geothermal power, or you're in a part of the world that has uh, renewable power where the renewable supply and demand uh, don't line up, right? So sometimes what you'll have is a lot of excess power being generated from some sort of hydro dam, but there's just not enough places to put that hydropower. And so what you'll see is miners will go uh, strike deals with a hydro plant and they'll say, hey, look, you're going to burn off all this energy anyway. I'll pay you a little bit for it, less than you'd pay on the open market. And now they're paying essentially below market rates for electricity. And so if you can find these kinds of deals, you can actually mine Bitcoin cheaper than you would be able to buy Bitcoin on the open market. Of course, it takes a lot of work to do and a lot of capital and a lot of investment up front. And there's a lot of risk. Uh, but ultimately, it's an economic incentive. If you can mine Bitcoin cheaper than the market price, then you can make money. Okay, so some people go through a lot of effort and expense just in order to mine and get Bitcoin. They think it has potential. But how can something be a store of value when there's so much volatility in the price? Anybody who asserts that Bitcoin is a store of value today, I think that's a bit of a stretch. I think it's a potential store of value. The volatility is tremendous. Uh, and it's very hard to assert that something is a store of value if it's going to have 80% 
pullbacks and it's going to have 5x runups, it's it's extremely volatile. And so it, it is a very risky asset class. And so everybody should do their own homework and be very, very careful about investing in, in this asset class only so much as they're willing to lose, frankly, at this point. Uh, it's still very, very early in the evolution of this as a potential store of value. Now, that being said, I think very interestingly, the volatility question is always relative to what? So relative to the dollar, Bitcoin is clearly far more volatile. Relative to Venezuelan Bolivars, I would much rather have Bitcoin than Bolivars, right? Which brings us back to Carlos. He's using Bitcoin. How does he feel about the volatility? I spoke with him just after Bitcoin's value crossed above $10,000 this past June. I thought he'd be super excited, even just a little bit. So I'm not into... uh... (laughs) into getting rich uh, by having Bitcoin. I'm, I'm not a, a, a trader. Uh, if it were for me, the Bitcoin should stay at the same price forever. Yeah. Because it's pretty uncomfortable to have uh, your life savings in a currency that at the end of the day is experimental and the, the price fluctuates like crazy. So I exchange uh, a pretty sizable chunk of my income into uh, stable cryptocurrencies like uh, DAI or uh, USDC, which are uh, currencies that are pegged to the uh, US dollars. Ah. So I'm still using cryptocurrencies and I'm still benefiting from all that liquidity, uh, but I'm not uh, vulnerable to these fluctuations. You're basically converting your Bitcoin because of the volatility into other cryptocurrencies, but that are backed by the US dollar, um, more of like a stable coin. Yeah, exactly. If I have Bitcoins, I can exchange two Bolivars immediately, right? So uh, I keep a certain amount of Bitcoin so I can exchange it easily uh, for day to day transactions. But I keep a big part of my income in a stable currency. So I don't lose nights of sleep if the Bitcoin uh, just uh, decides to to uh, go to three thousand uh, dollars the Bitcoin or something like that. If Carlos could keep his wealth in dollars, he probably would, but legally he can't. So instead, he mainly holds other cryptocurrencies that are directly pegged to the U.S. dollar. For example, you can convert one USDC to one dollar on platforms like Coinbase. It's a fixed exchange rate. Carlos wants stability. But those cryptocurrencies aren't nearly as liquid as Bitcoin, and there isn't a direct way to convert USDC to Bolivars. So he still keeps some Bitcoin on hand for transactions. It's not ideal, but at least he's got options. So back to your original question, you know, is it a store of value? It's not really a store of value today. Uh, It's extremely volatile. It's a very risky asset class. Uh, But in certain parts of the world where people have said, you know what, relative to my native currency, um, Bitcoin is a great alternative. You're starting to see organic adoption in, in places um, all over Latin America, Asia, the Middle East, where they don't have the good fortune that we do of, of effectively being the world's reserve currency and, and being able to have access to the U.S. dollar. Most people in the world don't have that luxury. As Americans, we're so lucky to not have to think about that because our government is functional. For all the challenges that it has, it's stable. We have a democracy. We don't have martial law. We have protections for minorities. You know, A lot of the history of the world is not stable governments that are highly functional for hundreds of years. So actually, for most of the world, having a significant portion of your assets in something that is not backed by your your country's currency is not so unreasonable. Is it important that there's a mass adoption here of Bitcoin? Um, you know, there's there's a lot of talk about it, news reports, a lot of people made money, a lot of people lost money. Um, but is that still just a really small percentage of folks um, is that important? And where are we in that cycle? 
again, by analogy, if you look at something like gold, you know, only about 400 million people in the world own gold, raw physical gold. And of course, countries have it in reserves. And so if you look at that number for a second, you, you step back and you say, well, on the one hand, 400 million people sounds like a lot of people. On the other hand, if you looked on your phone, there are probably a dozen apps on your phone that have more than 400 million people using them. And so I think in the era of mobile and the internet, when you have 2.3 billion people on Facebook, uh, you know, could one-sixth of Facebook buy into something like this where the only cost of, of getting into it is to have a mobile phone? That, to me, doesn't seem that crazy. And so, you know, I think it kind of depends on where you define mass adoption. On the one hand, a couple hundred million people is a lot of people. On the other hand, a couple hundred million people holding up gold's $8 trillion market cap is, is pretty amazing. So, you know, to me, it actually doesn't seem that outlandish that you could have 400, 500, or maybe even a billion people who buy into a digital gold because the friction to, to buying in is just so low. And it has gotten even less outlandish now that Facebook has announced that they'll be launching Libra, a digital currency of its own. Technically, Facebook wouldn't control Libra. It would be overseen by a consortium of partners. However, a lot remains to be seen. A few high-profile partners like MasterCard and PayPal have already dumped the project since the announcement. Concerns about trust remain high, and it has attracted a lot of government scrutiny. But with Facebook's cachet of users, maybe mass adoption is right around the corner. However, for many people, crypto remains an abstract concept that they have no intention of adopting. If they've heard anything about Bitcoin, it is that it is used to purchase items on the dark web, organs, drugs, and other unsavory items. And I think it's a totally fair question to say, isn't this only for, for bad stuff? Um, so I would say, one, you know, if you really are, are worried about people doing these bad things, Bitcoin is probably not at the top of the list of things to worry about, right? Like you probably have to worry about $100 bills in circulation all around the world, right? Like, <laughs> Good point. You know, Pablo Escobar was, was sitting on a bunch of literally U.S. dollars, right? So if, if you're worried about the bad stuff in the world and clamping down on that, probably Bitcoin is not in the top set of things that you need to worry about. Uh, you know, second, I would say to me, people potentially using it for illicit activity uh, is actually a really interesting signal because if you look at back at the history of technology in the very, very early days, often what you see is a unique set of early adopters. You see academics who sort of understand the technology. You see speculators who think that there might be something emerging. You see young people. Um, where you know they, they're not encumbered by the assumptions that people make about what should and shouldn't work. You do often see drug dealers because they have a lot of friction to using existing technologies and, and their willingness to adopt new technologies might give them an edge in their business and they're willing to take the risks uh, to have an edge. Um, you'll see the adult uh, entertainment industry adopt things very early. So you start enumerating like who in the history of technology is usually an early adopter. And you sort of come up with the same groups of people over and over again. And what's fascinating about Bitcoin is it's not just the sort of people on the fringes in terms of people doing bad things. It's all of the other people, too. You're kind of seeing all of the same people that made mobile work. You're seeing all of the same people that made social networking work. You're seeing all of the same people that made the Internet work uh, or early PCs work. So, yes, there, there are some people here that are doing some bad things, but there are a lot of other people here, too. Now that we have a good understanding of Bitcoin, what about some of the other cryptocurrencies out there? And actually, what's the difference between a cryptocurrency and a crypto asset? 
crypto assets is sort of the more broad term because there are certain types of crypto assets which are not necessarily currencies because one of the properties that you need of a currency is that it's fungible, right? Like a dollar is a dollar. Uh, and so a Bitcoin is effectively a Bitcoin and, and they're interchangeable. Whereas for something like a Pokemon Go card, you might have two different types of Pokemon cards. Uh, and so they're not exactly interchangeable and they're non-fungible. And so a cryptocurrency is sort of a subset of a crypto asset. What are other examples of cryptocurrencies that you would assume would a little bit more mainstream? Um, what is the difference between that and Bitcoin? Like, How do those even come to be? Yeah, so there are three categories of cryptocurrencies outside of Bitcoin that we think about. Um, there are things that are actually more decentralized even than Bitcoin. And a lot of these are where, where people who have deep academic background in distributed systems and cryptography have come into the space in the last several years and created, uh, you can almost think of them as new and better Bitcoin. And so, for example, uh, there are some projects like uh, Space Mesh uh, or Chia, which is started by Bram Cohen, what they really do is at their core, instead of using CPU power, they use hard drive space. So the idea is instead of one CPU gets you one lottery ticket to win, you could almost think of it like one megabyte gets you one lottery ticket. Uh, and the thinking there is it's much more power efficient. Anybody who has hard drive space could contribute. And so what it's essentially saying is we can compete with Bitcoin head on by creating a system that is much, much more decentralized because something that is more decentralized is a harder network to take down. And the harder the network is to take down, the more censorship and seizure resistant the underlying cryptocurrency would be. The more resilient the network is, the more uh, resilient the currency is. And so there are currencies that are competing on this dimension of decentralization relative to Bitcoin. There is a second category, which is programmability. And this is where Ethereum uh, is the most well-known uh, cryptocurrency. You can think of Bitcoin as sort of saying, hey, look, it's really about moving money around. It's really about payments. It's really about moving value. And what Ethereum says is, well, yes, we, we should do that. But what if you could have what are called smart contracts, where you can write a little bit of software and the rules that you code into the software dictate who has access to the money, under what conditions, how the money can move around, and, and you can actually create logic around the money. To simplify this even further, let's take an example from our conventional system. Let's say somebody writes a will, a contract that dictates what will happen once they pass away. That will is given to their lawyer. The lawyer, the executor of their estate, interprets the will to determine who gets what. Uh, and if you look around, a lot of the world is just cash flow statements with a bunch of legal code around who can own the money, right? So a will or a trust or an escrow, you know, who has access to what cash flow under what situations. With Ethereum, theoretically, you can write that will into code. So once the person passes away, everything is automatically split up according to the code. It can't be corrupted, nor does it need a third party, or in this case, an expensive lawyer, to determine where everything goes. So that's a, this entire second category of, of cryptocurrencies, which are much more programmable than Bitcoin. And the third is, is privacy. Bitcoin, it turns out, by, by its design and by its structure, is not private today. The blockchain itself is actually is a public blockchain. And so you can actually see money moving around. Now, each wallet address is not like, uh, you know, this is Mesh's wallet. Uh, but there's a string there. And over a period of time, you can start to see who's transferring money to whom. Uh, the FBI actually loves Bitcoin. Like we were talking about you know, illicit activity previously. It turns out Bitcoin is relatively traceable um, because you can see who's transacting with whom, even if you don't know who they are. And at some point, that money has to move out of the system. It's got to come back into the real world. And so as soon as it comes back into the real world, you can start to see that person moved money out. And you can now backtrace all of the other people that they received Bitcoin from. And all of a sudden, you can start to build a graph of 
who's transacting with whom and who those people might be. And so it's actually, a, from a forensics perspective, actually a, a great tool that this thing is public. And that has some you know, other interesting downstream consequences because, of course, if law enforcement can do it uh, to prevent certain illegal activities, uh, could a nefarious government use it as a, as a tool of coercion or control? Uh, and that, that's the risk. And so there is an entire sector of the cryptocurrency ecosystem that believes that privacy fundamentally uh, is a very, very important right. And baking that into the money that we use is very, very important. Uh, and so there are cryptocurrencies that by their design are far, far more private than Bitcoin is today. More and more people are adopting crypto and put into practice, these fundamental elements of decentralization and privacy have the potential to make a difference, literally change how the world works. We've seen this with Carlos. Okay, what are your plans? I mean, obviously, you want to continue writing, get paid in, in Bitcoin. Um, do you have thoughts of doing more things in Venezuela? Or do you want to go somewhere else? Um, we'd just love to know about your future. Okay, so uh, uh, logic tells me that I should leave Venezuela right now. In fact, I should have been out of Venezuela years ago because uh, of the whole economic collapse and everything. But I don't know, I mean, uh, I, I've always felt like I could use these technologies to just survive a little longer here because uh, emigrating means leaving your family behind and just it's really awful. So if I can make things work in Venezuela, I will stay. One of the organizations Carlos works for is called Give Crypto a nonprofit that distributes cryptocurrency to people in need. And through their platform, Venezuelans can get cryptocurrency even if they aren't able to purchase or earn it. Uh -oh. A pretty exciting thing about this is that, okay, you can send Bitcoin to someone in Venezuela and anyone in Venezuela can receive Bitcoin as long as you have an internet connection. And then the, anyone can go and change that for uh, bolivars and then for food or whatever in, in minutes. So it's very exciting what that technology can offer for us, which is something that cannot be done with, with other currency. A brief note. Since recording this episode, Carlos finally did have to leave Venezuela. The ongoing fuel crisis has meant that it's not just hard to get around it is also not certain that food can even make it to the store aisles. We wish Carlos and his family all the best. So there it is, the fundamentals of crypto. We've learned what it is, what problems it might solve, and how people around the world are using it. Now remember, it's still quite volatile. But nevertheless, what if you're interested in buying it for yourself or looking at it as an investment? You'll have, you know, six months in a row of Bitcoin up every month. And it feels like a risk-free trade. It's easy, right? It just happens. Every month you make money. And then people start getting greedy. That's Ari Paul, managing partner of Block Tower Capital, a hedge fund focused on investing in cryptocurrencies. We'll be talking to him in the next episode, and we'll be learning the investment side of crypto. I'm Mesh Lakani, and thanks for listening to Talk Money. I'd like to thank my guests, Carlos Hernandez and Avichal Gard. Please find their information in the show notes. Remember, you can see the written format of this episode on thetalkmoney.com, along with other episodes. I'd also like to thank my producer and editor, Max Miller, for his great work. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. And as always, I'd like to thank the folks at Anchor. 
Please subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you choose to listen. If you like our podcast, please share it with your friends. Until next time.